You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what he has to say about the future of Australia, technologies, demographics, and population growth. But collectively, as a city, as a nation, as a society, you want to build really high quality housing stock that can be renovated over one, two, three hundred years and that can then actually just, that just stores wealth in a city. And even not so rich people live in a very strong, high quality apartment generations after you. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we picked the brains of Simon Kustenmacher, who has been described as a rising star in the world of demography. He's a data scientist, speaker, advisor, writer, media commentator, and has a particular interest in the 2016 census, of which we're keen to hear his insights. Simon is a living, breathing research machine. As well as being a demographer, he's also a geographer and holds a master's in philosophy. Last year, Simon became the Director of Research to the Demographics Group and works alongside probably Australia's best-known demographer, Bernard Salt. Simon has big ideas, and you can see his articles in The Australian nearly every week. In this episode, we are keen to access Simon's mind to gain insights into the changing demographics at a macro level and how they are affecting our needs and desires for housing in this country. Thank you so much for joining us, Simon. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thank you, Simon. Appreciate you being here, mate. One of my questions, Veronica always takes the mickey out of me. She, she always says, why does it matter? Like, why? And well, actually, I don't. You do. <laughs> well, I, it's a question that I always ask, and it's kind of how my brain works. You know, why does demographics even matter? Demographics is at the center of who we are as a nation, and it t- can tell many, many stories of how we actually work, of how our cities function, and of where housing will be, what type of housing we will need. It's very important and ha- Demographics is predictable to a certain degree, so we can actually look into the future with a fairly high degree of certainty. Wow. And But before we get into that, can we just quickly explain for those listeners who don't know what a demographer is or does, what are demographics? Demographics basically just looks at the people. It's the study of people. And we look at the number of people, we look at the types of people and how they operate in time and space. Wow. Okay. Well, this is all behavioral, isn't it? Love it. All yeah, and I guess why I love this topic so much is, um, you know, property really, it's not just a pure investment. It's driven by people and people's needs. The more we understand humans and what humans want and desire and where we're moving. And I guess in Australia, we've got a very big changing demographics. Can you kind of give us a bit of an example of how we are different to the world and how we're going to continue to be different to the world? So I think there are two major big picture demographic trends in Australia. One is the aging population. That means we are a rich, healthy and wealthy country. That means we grow older. That also means because women outlive men by a significant margin that we have more and more older single women 
who then just live in their own housing. So that kind of shapes the way where people live. And the other big demographic trend other than aging is migration. Mm -hmm. So we are a country where population growth is driven by migration. You can always say approximately 400,000 people are added to Australia each year and around 280,000 more or less are migrants. Mm -hmm. These are the big figures. And migrants come to Australia in their 20s and 30s. Yeah. And they bring a lot of energy to Australia, about a third to a half of migrants, depending on the year, international students, which I always say are the jackpot migrants to Australia. They cost <laughs> absolutely nothing to bring up for the Australian society. And then they get highly educated in Australia. And we don't even need to pay for the education, but they pay for the education themselves. And mm. <laughs> they pay good money to do so too. And about one in six international students continues to stay in Australia afterwards as a skilled migrant. And then they pay tax straight away. So sure. international students are very helpful for the Australian economy. And they also shape housing in the mm. cities because they cluster around the universities um, that, they, that they go to. So that there is this kind of student apartment market that is, of course, driven by international students. You said about a third to half was international students. Yes. Yeah. So who? what are the other two-thirds or the other half? So if we, if we say in a typical year we have around 250,000 migrants, give or take, then we can say about 100,000 migrants there, um, international students. Huh. And we would probably say about 55,000, give or take, are skilled migrants. So these people come to Australia because they're training or their occupation is actually on the skilled occupation list. So that means that Australia has a need for these types of jobs because we can't produce enough doctors or architects or whatever is on the list at the moment to, to fill our needs. So then we have a big chunk already. Then we have family visas. So that means if one visa is given to dad because he comes here as, an, as a, a structural engineer, the family might there might be three family visas attached to him. So you can't really change too much about this. And there's a bit of um, short-term money visas out there. And we only have about 14,000, that's one four, 14,000 um, humanitarian visas. So these are migrants. Mm -hmm. So this, it's, it's a really small, small number, small yeah. percentage. And, and of those international students, you said one in six days. So that means rough, that's roughly 17%. So the remaining 83% go back. Is, exactly. is, that, is that a moving thing? So you might get 250 coming in. Is 83,000 exiting every year or does that, how so, does that work? <laughs> so the, the, the number that describes 250,000 new migrants per year, this mm. is called positive net migration. Mm -hmm. So these are new migrants. So when we say we add 100,000 international students, that means this year we have 100,000 more than we had last year. So it means mm. just our universities are growing. The individual mm, okay. students they're not the same because they actually either they change over visa or mm. more often than not, they actually leave the country and mm. then um, just talk about the education favorably, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. No, have you done much study around, um, you know, Australians living overseas and potentially moving back to Australia? Yes. So that is uh, a different visa category. Are Australians um, returning, returning home? Yeah. Mm. We, we do have a couple of famous pockets of Australians living in London. Mm. Apparently there's an Australian uh, pocket in Berlin now. Yep. Just young Aussies who want to live it up for a bit. But Aussies are fairly good at returning home. So mm. the, it's, it's not a migrant stock that 
actually lives uh, overseas forever, but Australia is a bit too good to leave forever. Yeah, and that's interesting because I mean, like someone like New Zealand, right? I think they have a they have in the past have had that problem a lot where you know they do the university and then they'll they'll come move, to here. move to Australia <laughs> and then they don't move back to New Zealand because of jobs and things like that, and it's easy and. Oh, it's a wonderful relationship, the Australian-New Zealand uh, migration relationships, because you always see it, it's like a big wave between the two countries. If the economy is up in Australia, but down in New Zealand, the wave comes to, to Australia and the other way around. So it's this constant give and take. It's a beautiful um, wavy motion that happens between the two. And is the wave going towards New Zealand at the moment? Because politically, they just seem so much more enlightened than we are. Uh, at the moment, New Zealand is not in a downturn, so it means we don't have a particular spike in, in Kiwis. Yeah. So back to the the immigration and how that impacts on the property market. I mean, you talked about the demand for housing around universities. What type of product is that? Are, are they buying it or are they renting it? So migrants, when they come to Australia, they don't know anything about the country. Pretty much you know your place of work or you know your university. So you first orient yourself close to that specific location, and then you find housing that is in, you decide what your radius is, five kilometers, maybe 10 kilometers, and you locate a house that you can afford somewhere around there. So that shapes the demand around the centers of work and around the centers of education. And in Australia, we have the vast majority of population living in only the capital cities. And each capital city has one major job cluster. So it's pretty easy to spot where migrants will first live when they come to Australia, simply because there's not enough knowledge out there. But that's the interesting thing. These are only the patterns of recent migrants. Once you look at migrants that have been established in Australia, that have been here long enough, they, are, they perfectly evenly um, distribute across the city. So um, clustering of migrants only happens for recent migrants. And once you integrate into society, once you learn more about a city, once you actually learn that there are suburbs other than the CBD, you can move elsewhere. So it's, it's a matter of time and it feels like there is a big, an awful lot of clustering happening because you constantly have new migrants coming in and other migrants moving out. But the migrants that are actually established in Australia for long enough, they um, perfectly evenly distribute. But is that a second generation thing? Because it's it's actually the same. It's the same migrants. Wow. It's just a matter yeah. of after after I've lived here for five, six, seven, eight, ten years, I actually know enough suburbs in the city because I've spoken to my coworkers because I m- might have read a bit or I listened to an enlightened podcast about housing. So <laughs> then I actually learned where to go to, and I would then make a purchasing decision, and especially migrants who buy a home which you don't do in the first couple of years because you, yeah. your visa situation is probably mm. not 100% clear you don't know whether you might want to go back later on so it just takes time plus would- remember migrants come here in their 20s and 30s so they don't necessarily have the cash just yet to buy a house how is that measured how do you measure that well <laughs> the most precise way of measuring this is the australian census and we do have the world's best census out here. It's absolutely fantastic. We have a census every five years and we ask 62 questions. We can combine this in a million different ways. The US, for example, have a census every 10 years and they ask 10 questions. Wow. So the the kind of information we can extract out of the census is absolutely fantastic. So there's nowhere in the world that has kind of a better census than us? There there are places like Singapore that have very good censuses, but 
uh, our census data is incredibly accessible. We might have a bit of a complaint because the server crashed at the last census. Yeah. So, but this is this is in a sense it's a tiny hiccup. It's a it's a pain that's worth having because we're transitioning to, from a paper-based census to a completely digital census. And the amount of information that the Australian business sector, that government gets out of this, this mm. is the way we decide when new schools will be located, yep. where business decisions are being made based on this kind of data. It actually does us an awful lot of good to have that census. Yeah, I mean, I love the census as well. <laughs> it sounds crazy. I do. You know, it's all online, right? A lot of it is. Mm. If you want to know about who lives in a suburb, what's the makeup of the family, what's their ages, what's their income, what do they do for work, it's all there. And so, you know, if you're thinking about investing somewhere, you can type that, that postcode in or the suburb in and all that data is there. And you can kind of, without having to just guess, I guess, and that's quite recent, right? And you can see what it was in 2011 yeah. and I think that's a very simple property trick is to go to the ABS website and look at what is called community profiles. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested to move into a suburb that you maybe don't know too much about, just have a quick look at the, at the suburb and kind of check it out a bit there. Mm. You might not take an awful lot from it, but I think it's worth those two minutes to actually mm. just get a big picture overview of the social structure of your suburb. What do you do with that census data? Because I'm presuming that you do more with it than the ABS does with it. What are you finding in there? So pretty much we, when we ask questions, when we have a question, we come up with anything that we figured that might be interesting. You can split the census in a million different ways in order to hopefully help you answer these questions. Many of those questions are around housing, are around migrants. We know with each person that answered the census, if they were a migrant, they give you the year they arrived in Australia. And based on this, you can map out people by year of arrival across Australia. And this is what I mentioned earlier about the clustering of recent migrants and established migrants. You can see this very clearly based on, on census data. And we would have no way of knowing this without the census. It would then just be some sort of hearsay speculation because my uncle first arrived and lived in the CBD and now he lives out yeah. in Pakenham. Yeah, no, I mean, 100%. <laughs> I guess the, the challenge is we, uh, population growth, you know, it, it's such a, uh, people are very uh, sitting on the fence, a lot of people at the moment. Like, but a lot of people are not hand, sitting on the fence. They're well, pretty vo vocal about well, it. true. I mean, yeah, they, and then, but they keep flipping each side of the fence. You know, we love the jobs. We love the growth, et cetera. We want our roads to be better. And, and then on the other side of the coin is, oh, we're growing too fast. Can you give uh, some, an example of kind of in Melbourne, what's the problems that kind of growing fast population has caused and what's that mean for the housing that's been built? Yeah. Um, so quick comment about the general attitudes towards migration. We pretty much hear the argument often that is said, look at our roads, they're congested. Housing is absolutely unaffordable. And that is because there is more demand than supply. And therefore, if we were to, in hindsight, um, take away, delete a couple of hundred thousands of migrants, the roads would be easily accessible, traffic would flow, and housing costs would be cheap. It's, that's a very short-sighted um, narrative, and it doesn't allow for the right complexities around the issues. But so that's the, that's the first initial observation, and it, it makes sense in itself. It's a populist argument. Exactly. And it's, it's a simple argument that you can make without looking into too many details of how that actually works. So in Australia, we are at the moment locked into population growth because the 
international students, for example, they just provide too much money for Australia. We would be stupid to give up on this. And this might not last forever. This is a whole different story of Making why. hay while the sun shines. Exactly. Mm. And then we say, oh, we have all this big business growth and Australian industry wants to grow, can grow, which is a very privileged and great opportunity, especially in context of the Asian century, where you have this big up-and-coming Asian middle class. Those cities in Asia are just exploding and population growth in Asia doesn't mean slum dwelling. That means an emerging middle class. And these guys demand Australian goods and services and we need to provide um, these goods and services and we can benefit from that. So that's nice. And then we need enough workers to do this. So this is why we have the skilled migration program where people come into Australia to deliver that. And so, but then we built into this, we built ourselves into the corner of fast population growth. Melbourne alone added 1 million people over the last 10 years. That is rapid population mm. growth. So if you go from 4 million people to 5 million people in 10 years, you need to provide an awful lot of housing. It's about, let's, let's call it two and a half um, people per dwelling. That means you have to add 400,000 dwellings. You need to build them fast. And if you need to build housing fast, there are only the big developers who can provide that type of housing at scale. And big developers can only build two types of housing. They can build big, fat towers in the CBD, which is what they're building. If you, if you occasionally come to Melbourne, you'll always be surprised, blop, 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 there's a new tower every yeah. time you come to Melbourne. <laughs> and they can build on greenfield sites on the city fringe. And so you have exactly these two developments popping up. There is in, in Plan Melbourne, which is the big strategic urban planning document that um, is supposed to manage the, the growth, future growth of Melbourne. We talk a lot about um, densification of the middle suburbs. And this densification just means if there's an old house, knock it down, build two, you know, build, build maybe a three-story apartment block somewhere. These are, that's how you densify a suburb, and that's good, but this is painfully slow. And mm. these projects are tiny for a big developer. Yeah. And they're probably too big, though, for the individual investor. Mm. So that means just with the speed of growth, we locked ourselves into a certain geographical setup of growth. And that means that um, the CBD, because we're also a nation that is centered around work. Work comes first when you make a housing decision. Mm. So we first know where we work. And then we come up with some sort of radius. We say, ah, oh, maybe I'm willing to commute for 40 minutes, an hour. I have something in mind, so I draw a radius. Then I draw a radius around, uh, I, I mark in my mental map, I mark um, transport corridors, maybe a good road, maybe a train station. Then I might consider schools, where are schools. And so this way I'm, I'm narrowing down my, my areas where I want to buy. And then I also have financial um, limitations. So it shrinks and shrinks. And everybody is doing the same who works in the CBDs, in the city center. So therefore, you have this really highly expensive ring around the cities. Yep. And this is kind of where, where we are now. This is how we got stuck there. And this is how we price certain people out of the, out of the inner suburbs, mm -hmm. which is problematic because there are ba basic professions that we just need to maintain our, yeah. our cities. And so you have nurses and just city city. Yep. workers they are just uh, forced forced out of this area and so there are 
potential policy solutions um, to be put in place to actually ensure that there is certain housing um, accounted for for essential workers. I mean, we're in a, obviously a knowledge you know country. We're creating a lot of knowledge jobs rather than you know manufacturing. Let's say. Yeah. Um, so where's the future of work? What's the you know because what you're talking about there is uh you know everyone wants to live close to work number one. But if we're creating all our jobs in the city, aren't we just got this self-perpetuating problem where all our jobs and everyone's just going to keep wanting to live near the city? Is that is that what's going to happen? That is certainly what happened over the last, let's call it, 10 years. If you look at the strategic planning documents for Melbourne and City, uh, Sydney, both of them had um, have this big plan. So we have our CBD, our current job centers, and then we build secondary CBDs that are far away or relatively far away from the CBD and we built job centers here. In Melbourne, you got Footscray, Frankston, Box Hill, for example. These are secondary CB hills. You built up Parramatta in Sydney. You have all those secondary employment hubs um, that, are, that are there in the planning documents. But these, that's all that planners can do. They can zone for certain type of housing, uh, certain types of um, yeah, building. Yeah. And you can kind of allow for jobs there, for office space. But then workers, uh, work, jobs, business need to relocate. And in a knowledge work economy, you have too many benefits from being close to other knowledge companies, to other, other knowledge workers, which is why we constantly add more jobs to the CBD. And then Melbourne and Sydney both did the same. Mis it's a weird contradictory narrative that they're running because they say, we, we have this big CBD, but we want to establish those secondary CBDs. But at the same time, we extend our CBD. We Barangaroo was built up. So we just put how many thousands of office workers mm. there. The Docklands in Melbourne is the fastest growing um, office space in, in Australia. So we're building those up at, while at the same time hoping that potentially some big employers go to the secondary hubs. That doesn't work. But the weird thing about Docklands in particular in Melbourne is that you've also got this massive oversupply issue with apartments there. So we're talking about having to build all this accommodation for people, this this burgeoning population, increasing population. We're talking about more and more people wanting to be close to the city for convenience and lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera, and, and work is a centre of their, their geography. But at that same time, you've got loads of apartments that nobody really wants to buy. Or live in, yeah, and that's the that's the big issue, right? So, you know, we want to live close to the city, but we don't want to but live in, in the city in their apartments. <laughs> and what we want is that kind of the housing. I think you're right, and I, I, this is kind of my kind of thinking with the future of work. And you know, I think that what creates jobs is business, and so a business, so what grows a business is good workers, talent. Customers. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, you can get customers, but if you can't deliver on the work, exactly you need right. you need talent, and you need someone who's yeah. and top talent um, is very competitive, and unfortunately, top talent don't want to go live in the far rings and in these new hubs. They want to work in the city where it's lively and they can yeah. learn and things like that. So a lot of businesses would move to these hubs. But the problem is they have hiring talent in those areas because a lot of those talent mm. don't want to commute or don't want to move, they want to work in the city. Well, the disruption. Is that, would that yeah. be a fair assumption? I think, I think it's a fair assumption. And we have, so you mentioned the, the Docklands as, a, as, a, as an issue, or apartments as a potential issue. So this is the, in, in a market where, in a pressurized housing market, whatever you build gets sold because we're just desperate for, for housing. If you build a big tower, a big apartment tower, 
you make more money out of it if you put in a lot of one and two bedroom apartments. Mm. So you might as well cut costs a bit there, you know, develop cheaper material, build a bit of substandard housing. So they're not shocking. They're still um, there are regulations that they have to adhere to. So that's all. It's, it's not illegal, but it's just substandard quality. It's not nothing where you can store wealth in over generations to mm. come. Mm. Yeah. But so we end up with this housing stock of one and two bedroom apartments which is only for a certain type of demographic. So if I want to raise a family, or even if I want to move in with my partner who I might have not met when mm. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment, then I need to at least move into a two-bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. But I potentially, if I want to buy it, I want room to growth. So there is this, this argument that we are just undersupplying certain types of housing, largely flat, uh, big uh, flats and apartments in, in the CBD, because this way we are forcing families out there somewhere else just one step out of the out of the cbd to the inner suburbs where there's also an undersupply then you get pushed out and out again and we could fix it by providing more livable stacked townhouses in form of an apartment mm. there's nothing that why we could not do that it's really interesting and i find this really fascinating because okay so developers are in it to make money right they make money by putting more apartments in right, and building to as low a standard as they can. But if they don't have a market for that lower standard, smaller product that really nobody wants, then are they really making money? Or are they making money purely because all those poor, unwitting investors, first lot of bunch of people who have actually bought these things off the plan, and they're the ones all losing money on the resale because there really is no market for it other than these poor investors that get sold a, sold a dream. Is, is that? Well, it's all a stack of cards, right? And so what the developers, if they can't sell them, then they can't build them. So they're all pre-selling the, these apartment blocks and they have been able to sell them for 10 years, hence why we've been able to build them. I agree though. I think going forward, the challenges the developers are going to have is who's going to buy these one and two bedroom apartments and what the developers are going to be forced to do is have to change their marketing, change the way that they build and start building three bedrooms, bigger apartments, much better, higher finishes because no one's going to want the, the one and two betters. And, you know, especially the housing market, you know, you just don't want the, to live in those those buildings. I mean, have you looked in the census? Have you looked at um, the changing ways that we are working from home and um, those sort of things on the future of work? That's one of my, was one of the first things we actually looked at with the census was just hoping that this digital revolution really takes place. And we have this big upsurge of people working from home, but the number of people who claimed they worked from home on census day went up from 4.1% in 2011 to 4.4%. Wow. So that is a very small number, but that number most certainly underestimates the number of um, digital commuters because most people don't completely work from home every day. Yeah. Those people most likely work from home for one or two days per week. And these days are Monday and Friday. That and wasn't the census a Tuesday. Is always Yes. <laughs> on a Tuesday. So ah. so this is why we, we can't capture ah. we can't capture the flexibility they're putting into work. But if you work in a in a big firm, in a big office, I'm sure that you could actually talk to your HR people and maybe they know it or maybe you just see it well, that they, your office is empty on Mondays would and they Fridays. Add that question into the next That's census. Right. Can they can they ask this week did you This is actually something that I put forward to the ABS. Mm. Um because it'd be something I'd be most interested in. Mm. And then you could, at least in theory, map out the ge geography of people working from home because that opens up 
a whole different realm of lifestyles when you say how often do i need to work from the office yeah yeah so it's it's this idea where you say okay let's say i need to work from the office for two days mm-hmm. and i can work the rest three days from from home then i could potentially live quite far away from my from my home so i live in i live in somewhere out in country victoria mm-hmm. i drive to melbourne tuesday morning work and incredibly long day in in melbourne on tuesday then i just sleep my six seven hours in an airbnb and go to work on wednesday in my office and then i drive home on wednesday night and i'm done for the week this is a bit of an exhausting lifestyle it would be easier just to just to work from shepparton or wherever i live in in Mm. in country victoria but it's it's an opportunity that some people might be willing to take especially if if you have one high income earner in the family yeah and then you have somebody staying at home with the kids and the kids go to a good healthy cheap country school yeah um maybe these are lifestyle options that are out there so the idea is that we at the moment we limit the numbers of options that are available to I Australians. mean 100% I can I'm in that boat like personally a lot of clients are in that boat you know I guess that if you cannot get a house in an area that really makes you excited and inspired and it's when due to the cost of it and the mortgage attached and what that means for work you know a lot of young people are thinking about alternative options and coming up with new solutions in their head and you know that is that is definitely one of them for a lot of people they're thinking well i can work from home three days a week um i've got the internet i've got the phone i've got um and i can pack my diary in two days and the power of Airbnb and even just hotels, just more generally, you mm. know, you know, give that option. Um, I mean, that's it's, it's definitely. I mean, have you thought about much around kind of the changes in technology and the impacts of them on demographics? So, technology will shape our cities, but I don't think it'll be that dramatic as some stories tell at the moment. We talk a lot about self-driving cars and drone deliveries, mm. and I think there's this overemphasis at the moment on those sexy technology issues because that's fun to speculate about those really crazy out there options but if we if you live in a big and dense city and you will need to move tons of people at the same time at at peak hour two times a day public transport will be the number one option to do so so you want reliable fast public transport and so therefore the real heroes in melbourne at the moment they are not celebrated enough in the public eye is the level crossing removal agency. So we still have, we are a city of 5 million people and we still have level crossings in the city. This is just unbelievable madness. <laughs> the, the improvements in traffic flow yeah. when you mm. kill a single uh, level crossing is fantastic. So this is what we need to do. And nobody... You know, you don't get applause at a conference when you talk about, ooh, let's remove a level crossing. It's just <laughs> sexier and cooler if you talk about drones and self-driving cars. Yeah, and just the futurist have... type exactly. you know, aspect. And it's, it's important to remember that cities over the last 20 years, you know, with the internet coming in, that was such a big change. Mm. But essentially, cities haven't changed much. Mm. Yeah. So the, the base construct of a city where you have jobs somewhere, people will still go to work. And people will live somewhere and then people will go to the footy and they'll go shopping. All these type of things will still happen to some extent and in some sort of form. It'll just, there'll be more people living in the same 
space doing this. So we need to become more efficient in, in managing the flow of people. So with regards to apartment design, because, I mean, obviously you look in, in London, you look in, in New York, Singapore, Hong Kong, loads of international cities, families live in apartments, you know, and obviously you've got to have the appropriate stock, the appropriate type of apartment for people who want to live in. Um, so how are you, are you seeing any reflection of the change in attitude towards apartment living for, for so I'm still born and bred or at least first, second generation Australians at least? rather than migrants, because I know migrants come here and generally and quite often come from countries where they're used to apartment living, so it's not, it's not a big thing for them. But for those of us born and bred here, it's a change of mindset. Are you seeing that? There's definitely a change of, of mindset. So we also see this um, reflected in more renters coming, uh, coming online. And that, that there are, two, there are two, two parts here. One is that if you, if you are a country that's made up out of more migrants, it's just it's just necessary that those people move into a rented apartment mm. or mostly an apartment because they don't know where the house is. Houses are more expensive. Yep. So the migrant stock will first move to an apartment. So that favors apartments, that favors renting. Yep. But then once people become established and have a family, you still want to live in a certain way. Mm. And pretty much you want to have a large enough house. So when you, when you ask people... Um, what is important in your house? The number of bedrooms is the most important issue. Mm. So it's not about oh, I must have a must have a quarter yeah. acre block, must have a tree in the garden. It's it's actually enough bedrooms, and there's no reason why we could build enough beautiful. Just think of Paris or Copenhagen style um, five story big city blocks with tons of four bedroom apartments. Oh, absolutely! Mm. I'd happily live in one. But mm. this is something. <laughs> That will be built um, when either the people already, when you find 20 buyers who will actually put the money together and act as a developer of the, for the project themselves, mm. then that can easily be done once you find the land. But the developers aren't convinced that there's a demand for it. Or the developers, the developers are flat out and they just operate according to a market logic. As a developer at the moment, you'd be dumb not to build a big tower with one or two yeah. bedroom apartments because that's how you create more. You, you have big amounts of capital that are just like in this building and you want to get as much out of it as you possibly can. So you put in more one and two bedroom apartments Whilst because they, they will them. get sold. Yeah. And as long as they get sold, they, there's no, there's no, there's no reason to build four mm. bedroom apartments. Mm. Yeah, I guess we'll need some type of, you know, you know, construction or crash in society there where they, you know, they need to start having to reassess what they're doing. But now let's just keep on building apartments because you can keep selling them, I guess. So you could either call for the crash, yeah, which is unpopular, or you could, it's probably even more unpopular in Australia. You could call for government intervention. You could call for red tape or certain regulations because mm. you still, cities can still operate within the zoning and they can say, we need, this is where we want a certain type of housing stock and you're only allowed to build here if you build that type of housing. Mm. And so, it's very unpopular to do so. Yeah, so where's it going wrong here? Because that, that's the thing. You know, we've got a lot of opinion around what population growth is doing. You've got this idea of we don't have enough supply and yet we clearly do have too much of supply of the wrong stuff and there's a mismatch there. The government clearly should have access to all the information and be able to see this. What's stopping them doing anything about it? Well, so while I'm every now and then pessimistic, I'm also very optimistic <laughs> when I look at 
Plan Melbourne and the Plan for Greater Sydney. Mm -hmm. yeah. These are great planning documents, at least in, in theory. theory. Mm -hmm. So, and that's all the government can do at the moment. So they're doing an awful lot of stuff right, but they rely on what is happening then. Mm. And I hope that we actually manage to have a very positive conversation about urban planning in and the shape of cities in, in Australia, because this is not happening at the moment. At the moment, we have a solely dystopian kind of discussion that says, ah, our cities will be absolutely horrible because we have more people, more this, we can't get anywhere. It's just going to be all really bad. And it was really beautiful a while ago. So <laughs> that is very, it's, it's a cheap way out. It is a cheap way out. And it, it, the, we need people who actually talk about the utopian future, mm. the positive future about Australian cities, saying, what about we create very beautiful, super sustainable and um, urban oasis, high-rise oasis or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So you need to have those people pushing the narrative here. Yeah. You have a couple of people in Melbourne running this, Nightingale Housing, yep. for example. So there are people who, but they are few and far between. They can't make a big impact because they're only going to be able to do five projects a year or 50 projects a year. It's not going to... Exactly. Hours, you know, yep. it's amazing what they're doing. I love the Nightingale project. And for listeners to understand what potentially could be the future of housing developments and communities, you know, that's one example, right? A absolutely. So the Nightingale model is a community-driven housing development. They're, they're pretty famous for their, in Brunswick, which is a cool inner city, hipster suburb mm -hmm. um, in, in Melbourne. And these houses are cheaper than the rest of the market because they cut out the developer. So pretty much the architecture bureau acts as a developer and they build housing around communities. So you sign up and they certain, I think 20% of the housing is actually earmarked for essential workers. So these are your nurses, policemen, uh, garbage truck drivers, whatever actually fits into their definition of essential workers. And I think indigenous housing is part of the plan. So this is very, um, very socially creative innovation in a mm. sector that is actually lacking innovation like no other sector in Australia. Yeah. And this kind of initiative run by a single, by a single small organization that mm -hmm. can make a change. And the more those kind of projects become yeah. popular, then there's a demand for that. And then there's no reason why some sort of really big developer couldn't run a similar project. But as long as there is enough demand for the old blueprints yep. out there, there's no. The, why would you risk it? It actually makes no sense from a developer's perspective then to risk anything because you still have to look after your own capital. Yep. So this is not just me finger pointing at yep. at developers here. Yeah, and that's right. They're always going to build what they can sell, right? And you're right. And that's yeah, that's yeah, the... yeah. Hang on, let's wind that back a bit because yes, they can sell it clearly. But I still want to understand who are they selling it to and what bullshit are those people being fed to think that it's a good investment. Because the thing is, the, the reality is they have been fed bullshit. If you're buying an apartment in Melbourne that where 50% of resales over, you know, 2011 to 2016 sold at a loss, and that is that is the, where the resale values, uh, you know, the second sale is less than the first sale, then it doesn't include all the people that still lost money because they might have sold 5000 more than they paid for it, but take out all the costs of getting in there and the holding costs. They still lost money. There's an enormous proportion of people buying into these substandard buildings all with the wrong type of stock. Who's buying it and what have they been told to make them want to buy it? Well, so it's down to marketing. So, I mean, the, yeah, but the, the developers behind the marketing, right? 
Yeah, and so the beauty, then the reason why it's still selling is the marketing's getting better, and the way that they're selling it is there's a housing housing affordability gap. We can't afford the house that we want. We don't want to move to the suburbs, and then the option is we go into a display home, and that display home has beautiful marketing. It's sold on this vision of this lifestyle, and when you when you sign that contract. You know, it's you, you've you can got many other options, and yeah. so there isn't actually a great alternative to go. I'll buy that three bedroom beautiful townhouse, and because that's not an option. So there's, you know, I can't get the house, and then it's like, well, I'll buy this kind of apartment, and then when the, the marketing kind of wears out, I think that's where it's going wrong. There's not actually a good option out there for for young people besides buying these apartments, and you know, and that that's that's the. Worry. Then it's the question whether this is a good option for you. Mm. So it's the idea if. If you buy a house as an investment or a flat as an investment, that can be a clearly wrong decision because you, well, you made money because you kind of had to sell at a bad point in time for you. So that that was a bad move then. If you actually wanted to live in the apartment, if you said, this is my my home, I really view myself as an as a urban worker bee in, in the inner yeah. suburb, um, then that makes sense because it's it's a lifestyle decision and it's it's worth, maybe I'm willing to pay a premium for for my lifestyle decision for my mm -hmm. location but you always want to if you make a big decision and in australia the how the the cost of your house is just so much of your net worth so mm. you then have an interest in actually thinking very long term for your housing decisions you actually want to live in this for a long period of time and do i have to be in the housing market to invest money that's another issue where i think in australia we're just obsessed with the idea of owning housing yes and it it, it can at its worst <laughs> it, it can take some sort of like um yeah nonsensical kind of like fanatical turns where you say i must now own a house and I, of course i can't afford the house that i want so I just buy whatever yeah. just to get just to get started i mean people don't even think about renting and that's 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 a bit of a worry you know and i, I think with these new buildings is that they are getting better but The problem is that leaves all the off stuff that's not very good. And so we're not knocking these buildings down. The buildings that were built 10 years ago are still sitting there. <laughs> uh, and the buildings were built 11, 12, 13. And the ones that are getting built now are marketed. They're harder to sell. So they're having to improve. They're having to be more sustainable. They're having to get better design. And so every year they're getting better because they have to be. But what it's leaving is this all this stock that we had to build for, for so long. And that's that's the worry I see that. You know, and what you have to live next to that because mm. they have to build it near that. And so yeah. you've got your beautiful, sustainable design, you know, with, you know, <laughs> uh, car share in there. And, you know, it's all these amazing things that are coming out in these new developments. But what does that mean for all the old stuff? And that's my worry. And I'm interested too, Simon, because you've come from Munich, right? Yep. So as a German coming to Australia and looking at our obsession with having to own property, what are your observations, not just as a demographer, but as a non-Australian born person coming with a different perspective, what are your observations? Well, the first thing is just the weird obsession with housing, as I mm. mentioned before, that you must live in a house. And I remember my first day walking through Melbourne, CBD, it was in mid-February 2008. So I walked through the CBD just looking up and you see big skyscrapers and you go, yeah, that's a big modern Western uh, city. And then I walked out towards Carlton and I figured, wow, there is it's just those single-story houses mm. just out of nowhere. Where did those guys come from? <laughs> and that's that's the weird thing is that we actually are missing the traditional middle ring that is um, 
existing in all, well, not in all, in most European towns. You have a skyscraper area if your town allowed skyscrapers in Europe. And then you have this really strong big ring where you have four, five story apartment blocks. And those apartments, they have three, four bedrooms, they have five bedroom apartments. Mm -hmm. It's all there. They're, they're big and beautiful and well established. They're three, four hundred years old mm -hmm. at times. Yeah, yeah. And that's because. Um, you build rock-solid, expensive housing stock. And that's exactly what you were hinting at, Chris, mm -hmm. that we are now building housing that either you can renovate it at very high cost or you knock it down in 20 years. So we're not building a housing stock that creates collective wealth for the country. Yeah. We only look at this, and it makes sense that you only look at this as an individual investor, investor just from your individual financial perspective, but collectively as a city, as a nation, as a society, you want to build really high quality housing stock that can be renovated over one, two, three hundred years <laughs> and that can then actually just that just stores wealth in a city. And even yeah. not so rich people live in a very strong, high quality apartment generations after you. Yeah, because we build for planned obsolescence of buildings. It's crazy. And I know that we sort of say, oh, well, the value's in the land. But in reality, it costs so much to build mm. that we should actually be looking at building yeah. something much more sustainable. But that's the other problem about the built housing quality is if you are in a super pressurized market where just housing is just so unbelievably expensive, you're just mm. scraping every penny to get, to get into the market. Can't afford to pay the, for quality. The only... <laughs> place where you can cut costs is the is the quality of the build mm. so that's exactly what what you do so i'm pretty sure if we were in a absolutely catastrophic housing slump where land is dirt cheap mm. then we build if we have the money we'd build higher quality stock in terms of our city design we've got yeah you know, 25 million people roughly and then we've got two five million people cities and brisbane and you know perth we've only got like four or five cities right that are quite big is that quite unusual to the world? And is that problem just going to keep on getting worse? How do you become more like a China with lots of different big cities? Yeah. So that's, that points back to the main geography in Australia. And Australia is definitely unique in sizable countries. Mm -hmm. That in Australia, over 60%, I think it's 64% of all Australians live in the top five cities. So that means that the vast majority of Australians just cluster around five. CBDs, five job centers, and then you replicate this housing stress exactly there. And what are those five cities? Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane, and we're generous, Adelaide. Oh, so Canberra's not included? No, 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 no. Not, mm. in, the, not in the top biggest cities. Mm. If, you, if you call, you can do the same spiel with capital cities, and then, then Canberra and Hobart and Darwin are included as well. I guess that's the problem, right? How do you end up creating other big capital cities you, you can't right because the jobs are going to keep on coming the migrations are going to go where the jobs are and so how do you actually build a new sydney so you wouldn't necessarily want to build a new sydney so sydney is doing the right thing saying okay how about we have this city of three parts where, where we navigate within the city and then outside so in liverpool Parramatta, cbd yes yeah and then you have then you say, oh, we have satellite cities outside of our big cities, and those cit those satellite cities. There's no reason they could be uh, they could not be integrated into the city with super fast rail or the occasional commute. So this would not be enough to get, you know, five hundred thousand workers from Ballarat into Melbourne in and out. That's that's stupid. Mm. So nobody proposes that. 
But the idea is that we create more and more satellite cities and those satellite cities have smaller satellite cities. This is exactly how cities in Germany, for example, yeah, are, yeah. Are, are distributed. And then you spread out jobs a bit more evenly and this will never happen to the same extent as is the case in the US or in, in Germany, in, in Australia, simply because we have five big cities and they are pretty far apart from one another. Mm -hmm. So the only way that you can link our capital cities up with one another on, on a functional basis are airports. Yep. And there's only so many people we can fly back and forth from Melbourne every every morning. Once a, Sydney to Melbourne, that flight path um, is actually the busiest sector in for the world. A long is that time, for a long time, it was the world's busiest flight route. It is mm. now some small flight route within South Korea. And we, we took second place to that. <laughs> there wow, well, there you go. It's <laughs> up there. I mean, high-speed rail. So everyone says, uh, you know, property prices are too expensive. You know, it's um, – I and then – you know, they think it's a great investment, which I think you've made that point before. Um, but I mean, the, you know, they, the answer is high-speed rail. You know, is the high-speed rail, A, a good idea? And B, you know, is, is it, um, you know, and, is, and B, how would that, you know, really work? Because, you know, in my view, it's like, okay, even if we do get it to work, there's only so many people that can fit on one of those trains. And so you're only going to build like one track up, one track back. You could build two tracks, but let's say we build one track, which is already going to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and then you think most people will need to go to work at the same time, you know, nine to five, eight to six. So <laughs> most people are going to want to get on the train one way, right? And so you've only really got one train going one way in the morning and one train coming back at night. Now, best case, you could get... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's you know your I best. Love it. So good. you've got two hours in the morning. You're, you're six till eight, right? Everyone gets on the train, and then you've got two hours at night, six five till seven, right? So you've got two hours in the morning, and let's say they're a very efficient train. They go every four minutes, and that's that's probably optimistic, right? To get everyone on the train seated, um, in four minutes, and then bang another train. It's it's pretty quick. So if you had fifteen trains. Right. <laughs> I know this, this might think, lose our listeners. Yeah. If you've got 15 trains times two hours. You're going to need two tracks for this, Chris. You yeah. can't possibly do this in one track. Uh, so that's 30 <laughs> trains potentially you could get into the city every morning. And that's it. So, And how many people can fit on a train? 2,000? So you can only get 60,000 workers into the city each day via a high-speed train. And the cost, and so, and that's really it. And, and, you know, yes, we could maybe change our working hours, but it's not easy to change your working hours. So, you know, my view on high-speed train is it's not going to make that big of a difference because... And so when we talk about high-speed train, well, let's just see what the current planning documents that are actually looking a couple of decades into the future, what they are saying. And they are not proposing those massive linkages between the own, between the satellite cities like your Ballarats, your Bendigos, um, but they are proposing inner city commuting mm. so this is why the, right. yep. the the um why in melbourne we're considering this train ring around the around the west uh west to the east through the, throughout the north so you just want to create a better faster more efficient network within the city transport network within the city that again doesn't sound very exciting but it is fantastic and they're massive cities with significantly more than 5 million people that operate very successful train operations within the city. They're not super cool looking um, trains. They're 
boring looking trains and they go very regular and they go all day and that's it. And they're not as sexy as drones and driverless cars. Yeah, I mean, mm. that's the thing. Like we all would love to have this, you know, Japanese world where there's all these high-speed trains you can get around and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it was just too big, right? And to, to build those trains, it's very expensive and you'd need lots of different tracks and it's just not going to happen. You know, I guess I, I agree though, the, the plans that cities like, you know, your Londons and your New Yorks and where you've got these amazing metros, like you don't hear, you have to kind of, you know, have to kind of be carefully planned. You've got to link a train to a tram, to a bus. But in London, you don't do any of that, do you? No, so it's it's just possible. So these are one of the big lessons when we look for best practice internationally. We know that at least in theory, somehow it's possible to run an efficient train network linked up with a road network to manage five plus million people. So that's something that we'd be looking forward to when we think about our next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So it's possible. So let's get this kind of stuff happening. It won't look very cool, but it will run an efficient and functioning town in the future. So what else, what other changes are you seeing? You know, I guess digging into census data, particularly and any other data you use as well, but what are you seeing in terms of the future of Australians and homes? In terms of homes? Hmm. Well, so there are a couple of, of trends. Uh, first of all, we see, we've seen over the last decades, we've seen a trend away from large families. That's just changing family structures. Yep. And we, you know this probably from your own family is that your parents had four siblings and you have one or two siblings. And that, that thing just changed the way that the Australian households look. We now have significantly more single households the, even in, if we look forward 20 years to uh, the mid-30s or late-30s, um, the family unit will still be the largest family household type, mm. but um, it will have shrunk as a relative proportion. So the, then you have significantly more couples because people live longer and the kids have finally moved out at 35. <laughs> and then you have more and more singles. The, and the singles will be made up the single growth will come from um, without women because men die. Oh yeah, you earlier. mentioned that earlier. Now, what is the gap? So, how much longer am I going to live? Then you know, you got I'm, I'm older than you anyway. So, are you still going to die before me, even though I'm older than you? So, <laughs> what's the difference? <laughs> so, pretty much, you say five, six years would be the the difference in life expectancy between men and women, and then you say, well, women tend to marry men that are older, a couple of years. So. I think your average Australian woman can expect to be widowed for about 10 years plus. So it makes sense, though, if you're a woman and you don't want to, uh, you know, die by yourself, you know, you probably should marry a man eight years younger or something, shouldn't you? This is what? So uh, that was my strategy. Yeah. <laughs> <I guess>. um, <laughs> or you just go and, yeah. if you're a woman, go and find a woman to marry. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, that's, that's another very interesting uh, cheeky side note from the census is, so you see the in terms of partner selection, mm. it's called upward social mobility of women. Mm. Women tend to marry upwards, which means they marry somebody of equal or higher educational or financial standing, which made an awful lot of sense back in the day when women weren't allowed to get educated. And mm. the only way to improve your lot in life is to marry the, the richest, most educated men, men around. In today's world, women outperform men in primary school, secondary school, and in university. The pay gap is shrinking 
And in 20 years' time, when Generation Y will be of CEO age, the pay gap will be gone. So that means then women will actually out-earn men because they are more educated. So what does that mean for partner selection of women? It yeah. will actually mean that the most highly educated, successful women have a tiny pool of partners to choose from. So that means they pretty much can't find a man. It's already the case. If you are highly trained, rich, successful woman and you can't find a man and you say, oh, there are just no good men around, turns out you're right. So go and find a highly trained, rich and successful woman. Yeah. And this is also a housing market that will actually come along with this because you will have a cashed yeah. up cohort of women who live near the CBD or want to live near the CBD, but they just, they live by themselves. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Simon, can you please give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yes. So I think the most important property dumbo that I could possibly think of has to do with innovation. So you always want to remember that regulation follows innovation. That means in terms of Airbnb, for example. This is something that just pops up onto the world stage and you can run an Airbnb out of your house and you can make money with it. And certain people already just actually put this into their financing of their house. They go, no, I'm definitely renting this out on Airbnb for 12 years at X cost. But they might forget that regulation will catch up with it because this is what zoning does. Zoning decides what type of houses is where and what type of people live in that suburb. And you'll see this in, in many Spanish tourist hotspots already where the um, Airbnb stock and short-term rental stock is significantly more lucrative financially. So they actually displace local population. So you have whole suburbs slowly dying out and there are only um, short-term rentals in there. and then the city government doesn't want that. They actually want the tourist um, streams to be directed to the hotels. So what they then do is they outlaw Airbnb. And if your property strategy fully relied on Airbnb bringing in money, you lose out big time. Mm. So that's something just to be aware of with your, um, with your financial decisions around housing. If some sort of innovation plays a crucial role in your financial strategy, consider what this might look like in five years and 10 years. Mm. Yeah, really? I mean, we've seen that, right? So, yeah, yeah. New, new regulation laws have come in for Airbnb and, you know, and it makes sense, right? Like, and there's a lot of social pressure for and, uh, and against it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a crazy strategy just investing for Airbnb and it has to be a good investment regardless if you don't have Airbnb. So it's a very good point. I think it's an excellent point. We did interview um, another Munich uh, person came from Munich. <laughs> a very good point. We did interview another person who originally came from Munich, um, Kieran Wegenhofer. Did, did I say that right? Yes. Um, and he's, he's the CEO of Made Comfy, which is actually a business that, that completely is uh, uh, in in that whole Airbnb and the short-term rental space. And it, 
very interesting chat. So that's back in episode 21 if anybody wants to listen to it. But yes, fundamentally, that is excellent advice and it's a real Dumbo who buys only with that in mind because if that is your sole strategy and the property doesn't actually stand up on its own two feet as a good investment for other um, you know, long-term tenants and also as a good investment in itself for owner-occupiers, then it's doomed to fail and it's going to cost you a lot of money. You need to be chasing that short-term buck and it's, and it's really uh, very risky, highly risky. Did we miss anything? No, there's always more to talk about. But, there is always. Um, Simon came very well prepared with a whole list of notes for us. I'm just a bit worried that he's, he's done this prep and we haven't actually covered everything. Have we covered everything? No, I think I think we definitely got enough. Yeah, for yeah, now. Yeah. Well, that's great, and I'm sure that we can probably think of more things and maybe bother you again sometime oh. for another episode. Thank more you so much. Thank oh, you. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you for your time. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is thinking about the future when you buy, but not buying for the future. I think we had a such an interesting chat here with Simon about demographics and thinking about the way we live now and also the way that we, we think that we're going to be living in the future. Now, we did talk about sort of the master plans for mega cities, or we say mega cities, but mega cities in Australia, such as Sydney and Melbourne, where there's predictions to get up to seven or eight million population within the next, say, 15 so years. And obviously, there's got to be a change in where we live, how we live, what we live in. But one of the things to be very wary of is buying now with a view to changes in the future. So, for instance, in Sydney, you know, Liverpool has been mooted as another CBD. Now, if you go buying property in Liverpool now, until this really gets off the ground, until employers of choice move out there, until people who want to work at these employers move out there, until there's this demand that goes out to Liverpool and a whole, you know, mass of people vote with their feet effectively and say, yes, this is where we want to live. There's good things about here. This is where we want to invest our money. We're going to commit to these areas. And there's a whole vibe and a whole lifestyle that goes with that and the demand that goes with that. It's not until that starts happening that you're going to see significant capital growth. So it's all very well to to think as a futurist and think, okay, well, that's what's going to happen in the future. But if you're investing there today, you could be sitting on that investment for a long time waiting for it to actually deliver a return to you. So just be very, very careful and mindful about that. There's a lot of risk and speculation in that. We can certainly see that there's these changes, but they could be decades away. Tune in next week when we interview Megan Hetherington, a buyer's agent from Brisbane. We particularly focus on first-home buyers in this episode, where they get their information from, where you can trust and the information you can rely on, and also the dangers of relying on first-home buyer grants and stamp duty concessions and why buying brand new and off the plan is super risky, especially for your first property. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please...